0: Holy Week. Holy Week. Now that says something important to us, and I want to encourage you to make it important in whatever way the Lord leads you, and maybe in some specific ways that you purpose to make this a Holy Week. Well, welcome to Faith Is. I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and this is the place where we stretch ourselves and maybe sometimes let God stretch us in His direction. See, we want to stretch toward God's high calling, easy for me to say, rather than shrink from it. We want to be the people that God always imagined we can be, and we want to stretch to whatever it is He calls us to do and to be. And to be those people, we have to have faith, and here we talk about faith as absolute confidence, In the trustworthiness of God. Absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. Now that's a pretty high bar. I think it's kind of a practical definition to help us think about this. I don't know what you think about when you think about absolute confidence. Who do you have absolute confidence in? What do you have absolute confidence in? That's a real challenge to think about that. We live in a time when our confidence in institutions is diminishing. People and groups we used to think we could trust without question, without hesitation. We're starting to wonder about that. We don't have absolute confidence in them anymore. Even if we had sort of confidence in them, we have less. But here we want to talk about faith, confidence in God, And can we stretch toward that ideal where we have absolute confidence in God's trustworthiness? And when we do, that changes how we think, how we feel, how we choose. So, let's get back to Holy Week. We call it Holy Week, and that's largely because it is the week that we remember the Palm Sunday entrance into Jerusalem that Jesus conducted. He was met by, or greeted by, or accompanied by, how you might think about that, a great crowd. It unfolded in some other events that finally resulted in the Last Supper, and then the crucifixion of Jesus on Friday, what we call Good Friday. And then, of course, the week comes to a dramatic end with the resurrection of Jesus on Easter. Holy Week. Now, it's more than just a description of a week, and when we say Holy Week, it all always brings to mind that, yes, this is the week that we remember the Passion of Jesus. Well, the word holy can be talked about in a number of ways, but one of the important ways is that means it's set apart. Set apart for a sacred purpose. So, this week, if it is Holy Week, then it's set apart for a sacred purpose for Christians, for followers of Jesus. So my challenge to all of us is how will we set apart this week as holy? Now, there are always going to be, and the competing interests are not going to go away because it's Holy Week. I understand that. You have responsibilities to which you've made a commitment. I get that. But you also have discretionary time, and you can choose how you will spend Holy Week. How will you make this a holy week? How will you set apart this week as holy? What will you do intentionally to make this a holy week? So, for example, I hope that everyone attends church, especially during Holy Week. Now, you know, the old joke is that there were people we only saw in church on Christmas and Easter. And it's an old joke because it has far too much truth to it. And maybe you're someone who's thinking, well, it's Easter and I need to get to church. Haven't been there since Christmas. And here it is, March, going into April. And now, wow, where has the time flown? And guess what? It's time for Easter. So maybe you're thinking, okay, it's my church Sunday. I'm going to go this week. Well, I hope you are thinking that. But I hope you're thinking beyond that, because if we have absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, we ought to demonstrate that by what we do. Now, maybe you regularly attend church. Maybe you're there every week. Good for you. Might I also encourage you to consider setting apart time this week, perhaps on Good Friday. Not every church has a Good Friday service. That's a whole different conversation and a bit of a disappointment. I can remember years ago when I was not the pastor, I was on a church staff, and I happened to answer the phone one Holy Week, and the caller wanted to know when our Good Friday service was. And I can remember the the discomfort that was mine when I had to say, well, I'm sorry our church doesn't have a Good Friday service. Well, that kind of weighed on my mind, and our church will have a Good Friday service. I hope yours does. But if yours doesn't, maybe this would be an opportunity for you to share the Lord with another congregation. doesn't mean you're being disloyal to your church. It just means that you're purposefully setting aside that time to declare before heaven and earth that your allegiance, your loyalty is to Jesus. And maybe you want to attend a Good Friday service. And maybe you don't want to because, you know, there are people that always say, well, do I have to? I get really tired of that sense. Now, people don't usually come up to me and say, do I have to? But they say it in other kinds of words as though, well, do I have to do that to get to heaven? Or they might say, well, I don't have to do that to get to heaven. I understand that that's not required. That's not the point here. The point is, what will we purposefully do to make this week holy? And I hope you'll think about that because I think that's an important thing. And I hope you'll find a church A church that's closest to the Bible in your area so that you can attend on Easter Sunday and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus because the resurrection of Jesus makes all the difference. 100% makes all the difference in the world. So, anyway, that's my beginning sermon for today in our church on Sundays where I'm the pastor, and I am Pastor Rick Stevens. I'm the pastor at Diplomat Wesleyan Church in Cape Coral, Florida, and it seems like our church services are punctuated by several sermon-type statements by me, and I didn't realize I was doing that until a few years ago. Someone kind of pointed that out to me, and I thought, yeah, I guess I'd do that. So anyway, here we go. Let's take a look at, at the celebration that's characteristic of this weekend, this beginning of holy week palm sunday sometimes referred to as passion sunday depending upon how the church the local church decides to celebrate it most usually where i have been a part of a church and where people are used to celebrating the events of this particular season we've focused on palm sunday and reminded ourselves of the coming events later in the week the last supper and, of course, the crucifixion of Jesus, and then we celebrate on Easter the resurrection of Jesus. But this is Palm Sunday, and so I want to think about that and talk about that and kind of think about the events of that and how they impact us and what that means to us. And so I thought we ought to begin by reading the story from Matthew. Matthew chapter 21 begins with verse 1. We're only going to read a few verses. The story is rather short, 11 verses as the verse measurement is. And it gives us us the story from Matthew's perspective of Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, usually called the triumphal entry. So verse 1, Matthew chapter 21. When they had come near Jerusalem and had reached Bethpage on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village ahead of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, just say this, The Lord needs them, and he will send them immediately. This took place to fulfill what had been spoken through the prophet. Tell the daughter of Zion, Look, your king is coming to you, humble, and mounted on a donkey, and on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt, and put their cloaks on them, and sat on them. A very large... And he sat on them, excuse me. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and that followed were shouting, Hosanna to the Son of David! Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord! Hosanna in the highest heaven! When he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil, asking who is this the crowds were saying this is the prophet jesus from nazareth in galilee and that concludes the reading at verse 11 and yes indeed it's the prophet jesus from nazareth in galilee and here he is entering jerusalem triumphally as we think of it now jesus had been to jerusalem before this wasn't the first times but it, he did enter it in a very different way and it does set up the unfolding of the events that we now call Holy Week. So we want to talk about some of the things that that took place as Matthew gives us the story, so that we can kind of understand the context and the significance of it. Now, one of the things that I like to point out, and it really had a lot of meaning to me when I learned this some years ago, is the is the point of him entering the city, as the Scripture says, um, on on the donkey and the colt. Now. The, As Matthew tells it, we say, two animals? He couldn't ride two. No, no, he didn't ride both of them at the same time. It wasn't some circus act where you'd stand on the backs of both animals. No, it wasn't that at all. But what the the writer is telling us here is that Jesus rode on this untrained young animal that hadn't been ridden before, and the other animal was likely that animal's mother, that young animal's mother. And they would be kept together for a period of time in order to keep the young foal calm. So that's the that's the confusion there. Sometimes people read that and wonder, what about the two animals? Well, now, now sometimes people also wonder, what in the world? They just took some guy's animals and took them to Jesus? Well, yeah, they did. But that really wasn't that unusual. That was a, a reasonable courtesy in those days when a significant person needed it. It was common courtesy to loan them, the animals. So this would not have been terribly unusual. Seems really odd to us, but it's but it's not in that context. And of course, the animals would have been returned later. That was part of the understanding. So it wasn't really... It wasn't Jesus hijacked these animals and kept them. That wasn't the point at all. The point is that they loaned them to him. That was what happened in those days. Now, sometimes people read our day back into the scriptures and that's one of the things we have to be careful about that we don't take our understanding of things and then apply them to the bible and say hmm what's going on here so sometimes people will look at this story and they'll say hmm why was jesus riding this kind of animal if this is a triumphal entry why isn't he riding in on a big white horse to all kinds of acclaim and in our understanding of things, that's a perfectly reasonable question. That's not unusual or out of order, and it's not improper to ask such questions. It's, it's really important to think about these kinds of things. So the explanation is, is it really in twofold, and you'll see these things explained in different ways. One of them is that, well, it says here, in quoting the Scriptures, Look, your king is coming to you, humble humble. And mounted on a donkey. So people are saying, well, that's an evidence of Jesus' humility, that he was riding on a more humble animal. Well, that resonates with us. I'm not sure that would have been the same understanding of people in those days because what we need to remember is that Jesus represented, and we know this probably more looking back from our perspective than they did in those days, but we understand that. Jesus came, and he, in a sense, was looked at, and has been looked at, as bringing to pass the second Davidic kingdom. In other words, there was a king in Israel. First one was uh, Saul, he wasn't so good, and so then Samuel anointed David, and he was really, really good. He was the best king ever. The nation enjoyed the best times ever under the kingship of David so jesus being and we'll talk about this in again in a minute being of david's line he represented the re-establishment or the rebirth or the coming again so to speak not in eschatological terms don't don't misunderstand that but here he comes into jerusalem as though he's the the guy who's bringing back the good times of david's kingdom Well, okay, we get that because we understand some of that. And we understand the line of David, and and let's explore that before we lose track of it. So the line of David was a very important concept. They understood that. They talked about that in the verse 9 that we read, Hosanna to the son of David. So there's reference to David's kingdom And certainly, this is prophecy fulfilled. We don't want to miss that. And certainly, this is a recognition that David's reign was the high point for the nation of Israel. We understand that. We know that Jesus came from the line of David. Remember, it says in the Christmas story, Joseph went to Bethlehem to be taxed because he was of the line of David. Bethlehem was David's hometown. That's where Jesus was born. So there's this connection deliberate and intentional connection between the coming of messiah and the kingdom of david so that's good so far so good what's that have to do with the with the uh, animal that jesus rode in and why didn't he ride in on a horse well if you read the story of the kings of israel you go back and you read the story of david and you read all the great things that happened but then you read at the end of the of his life david was declining physically. He would not live forever. No one expected him to. And he was getting worse and worse. Age was catching up with him. And there are descriptions of that in 1 Kings chapter 1. And the people were getting a little nervous because David was getting lower and lower physically, and he had not named a successor. And of course, if you don't name a successor, then, well, who knows what would happen, because anything could happen with the competition and the attempt to rise to the throne. And so they finally encouraged David to name a successor, which he finally did. And he named Solomon to be king after him. And when he did that, part of the instruction that he gave, and you can read this in 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 33, part of the instruction was that they should take Solomon and have him ride on David's royal coronation beast. See, it was the same type of animal that David rode, and it's the same type of animal that Solomon rode to be anointed king and then to ride back into the city and to be recognized as king. He rode on the king's royal coronation beast. And it wasn't a horse. It was the very same kind of animal that Jesus rode. So I think that's especially significant for us to make these historical connections. Not only do we see the prophecy quoted here in the part that we read, and we'll maybe talk about that a little bit more in a minute, but we see the connection between the royal coronation beast of David and now the royal coronation beast of Jesus as he enters Jerusalem as king, as triumphant. Now, the other things that, that are said in here are are also kind of interesting. It, uh, it talks about the king coming. It, it prepares the way for the king with the crowds gathering with the cloaks on the road and the branches. We usually think of them as palm branches. They may well have been. They could have been other kind of branches. I'm not sure that anything says exactly what they were, although palm branches would not have been unusual. But they're getting ready. And they're preparing for the arrival of a king, and this would have been typical to what they did. You can read that in Second Kings chapter nine. One of the kings was welcomed when people spread their cloaks out for him. They blew the trumpet and they proclaimed that he was king. Jehu is king. Second Kings nine thirteen. So getting ready for a king was kind of normal. People understood that. The only reference that I have really is the is the little bit of. Um, awareness I had many years ago when I was in college. And the president of the United States visited our city. And I I never really thought too much about that. You know, I didn't get caught up in the excitement of it too much. I followed the news of it a little bit. But one of the things that struck me is that in those days, and I'm not sure they do this now, but in those days, they announced the route that the president would travel from the airport where Air Force One would land down to the convention center in town in Evansville, Indiana. Shout out to all of you Hoosiers. Yeah, I lived in Evansville years ago when I was going to college. And they announced that route, and they also said something interesting as part of the preparation for that. The city encouraged people to spruce up their properties along that route, going into town, paint things that needed painting, make sure the grass is cut, you know, things normal, kinds of things because they wanted to get ready for a presidential visit and welcome the president and kind of make the city look good. That's kind of normal. Well, I had never really thought about that. I didn't know that cities did that, but that was my experience, and, and I didn't live along the presidential parade route, so I didn't see the, the motorcade from my, from where I lived. I did happen to see it. I, I was kind of surprised. I went to, went to class like I usually did, and I walked out along the block down to where I parked the car, which is where I usually parked it. And I just happened to realize that I didn't make this connection. It's kind of, kind of odd that I didn't make this connection, but I didn't. And I didn't make the connection that it was about time for the presidential motorcade to come that way because they had announced his arrival time and when they expected him to be at different places on the, on the route. So I walked probably a little bit of a block down there to the corner because the president was coming down the highway and then he was going to be turning right from that highway traveling south on the highway then turning right to go into into the downtown area and so i walked down to the corner and i actually saw the motorcade pass by i thought that's kind of interesting so i remember this idea of preparing for a presidential visit and it was a big deal to that city a very very big deal and so here we see the 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 people quoting the scriptures Quoting from Isaiah, The Lord has proclaimed to the end of the earth, Say to daughter Zion, Look, your Savior comes, His reward is with him, and his recompense before him. So that is a reference that's mentioned in Matthew. That's a reference from Isaiah. We also see the quotation from Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. You may be familiar with this one. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion shout aloud o daughter jerusalem see your king comes to you triumphant and victorious is he humble and riding on a donkey on a colt the foal of a donkey so see jesus really did fulfill the old testament prophecies and that's an important connection we uh, rejoice that he did it's really kind of cool the way god orchestrated all these events and it's really interesting that the people in those days Use those words to welcome Jesus. And, and they use the word uh, Hosanna, sometimes pronounced Hosanna. I usually pronounce it Hosanna because of my music background and choirs. We didn't sing Hosanna, we sang, sang Hosanna. But that comes from Psalm 118. And the, the use of that was regular during Passover season. It was part of what people did. But it's interesting that the crowd here applied it to Jesus and really what they are saying there is is lord save us that's the sense of what we use of the way we use the word hosanna they were asking the lord to save them and they were recognizing that here came a savior now i'm not sure they recognized the exact idea of savior that jesus had in mind but they definitely recognized that they needed help because they were under the domination of the roman empire so in Psalm 118, verses 25 and 26, we read, Save us, we beseech you, O Lord. O Lord, we beseech you, give us success. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. So the people were clearly, clearly expressing some profound, profound truth about Jesus, that he was coming in the name of the Lord, that he was coming to save, that here is Jesus coming most significantly as Messiah. They really recognized that he was coming as Messiah. And of course, you probably didn't miss it. Did you miss toward toward the end of what I read? I I don't imagine you did. When he, meaning Jesus, entered Jerusalem, the whole city was in turmoil asking, who is this? The crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee. So, So get the scene. They entered the city of Jerusalem And and you might say, how could the whole city be in turmoil? Well, keep in mind, cities in those days were not as large as our cities. And the word would spread. And the question they were asking, the turmoil was, who is this man? The crowds were saying he's the Messiah. And the people, remember, also Jewish people in Jerusalem who would be looking for Messiah, were asking, who is this? And marveling that, could this really be? Messiah? Could it really be the one we've been looking for? Could it be that Jesus, Jesus from Nazareth in Galilee, is the Messiah? And of course, we know that the long answer and the short answer is, yes, he's the Messiah. So that gives us a little bit of the setting of what's going on here as Jesus comes to Jerusalem. Jerusalem geographically he is traveling from jericho which is about 15 miles northeast more east than north from jerusalem you can look on a map if your bible has maps in the back you might very well see the line that shows the road that jesus traveled from jericho to jerusalem and it says in matthew chapter 20 that's the chapter before what we read matthew chapter 20 in verse 29 as they were leaving jericho A large crowd followed him." So, understanding the geography and of where the crowd came from, the crowd that proclaimed Jesus Messiah as he was entering Jerusalem had accompanied him from Jericho. Now, it wasn't unusual for that sort of thing to happen because crowds were going to Jerusalem for Passover. And that's why they were traveling from Jericho to Jerusalem. That's not the whole reason Jesus was, of course but they traveled that 15 miles together. Crowds would travel together, groups of people, perhaps I should say, would travel together, because that gave them safety from bandits and other mischief makers along the way. So they traveled from Jericho. This large crowd accompanied him all the way through. They would have gone through Bethany. You can see that on the road, the route that's mapped out that Jesus traveled. They would have gone up the hill to the top of the Mount of Olives, and they would have had that absolutely stunning view of the temple and the Temple Mount from the top of the Mount of Olives. Now, the Mount of Olives is not a mountain as we think of it. It's a ridge that runs along there, but it was it was high ground, and they were up at the top of that, and you can look across it. That's the same picture you've probably seen many times. Today, we look from that vantage point across to see the city of Jerusalem, both the new city that's modern and developed, and then the portion that is the old city, including there's the big dome uh, that represents the location of the mosque that was built there. You can see from that location some of the remnants of the temple that was built. You can see the steps, for example, that Jesus would have walked up to go into the temple. So it's quite a sight from the top of the Mount of Olives. And, And so the the people would have been traveling up they would have gotten to that and i have no idea what they said when they saw jerusalem i'm sure the anticipation of being there would have been high because that's where they were headed and we all anticipate arriving at a place and and so i i, I like to think this although i don't know because i don't know the ancient mindset and i don't want to read my thoughts back into it but if if I was with them, and as I put myself in that story, and I try to imagine what it must have been like, and that's all I can do, really, as I can imagine the excitement of seeing that and the realization that here is Jesus, and it's been building that they're going to Jerusalem, and now they have the privilege, this crowd has the privilege of proclaiming Jesus as he comes into the city. And so they would have gone down the 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 road that goes down the Mount of Olives and you can walk that road today if you happen to see pictures of people celebrating Palm Sunday that's the road they would have walked down they would have walked down the Mount of Olives and across the Kidron Valley and then up and it would have been up it still is up you can see that in the geography up into the temple and the temple area so it's really quite dramatic and quite stunning. And these people would have likely been thrilled that they got to announce the arrival of Jesus. Now, I don't know that for sure. I don't want to mislead you. But you can, you can kind of gather that from looking at the text. Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. They were exuberant with welcome. Jesus triumphantly into the city of Jerusalem were the events that would then unfold as Holy Week. Now, Jesus didn't stay in Jerusalem the whole week. You can read that later. We're not going to get into that. But he went back and forth, likely back and forth to Bethany. Bethany was on the same road they had just traveled back a couple miles. He would have retreated from the city of Jerusalem and gone there for specific purposes. But now he's entered the city. He's come as Messiah and King. The people have cried out, Save us, Lord, and they have great hopes of salvation. And we're going to talk some more about what this means and where we find ourselves today in the story of palm sunday so don't go away we're going to come back and we're going to talk about the triumphal entry and we're going to talk about our place and our decision when it comes to the story of the triumphal entry i'm pastor Rick. we'll be right back
1: Are you worried about spike proteins and how they may impact your health? Are you looking for help? The Wellness Company has an answer in the form of our clean, pure, all-natural spike formula developed by experts like Dr. Peter McCullough. The Wellness Company's spike formula includes the incredible natto kinase, dandelion root, black sativa extract, green tea, and iris sea moss. Even better, the spike formula by The Wellness Company is vegan, gluten-free, and made right here in the USA so you know that you can trust and rely on it if you're concerned about spike proteins. Buying American-made naturalistic ingredients of this quality separately costs over $100. Our spike formula is only $65.99. Get spike formula today by going to twc.health. Outloud listeners use the code OUTLOUD at checkout for an additional discount. Go to TWC.health, promo code OUTLOUD, and get peace of mind if you're concerned about spike proteins. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfolgercom forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code outloud. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. Code out loud. It was Henry Wadsworth Longfellow that said, "Lives of great men all remind us we can make our lives sublime and departing, leave behind us footprints on the sands of time." America Out Loud Talk Radio the liberty, and justice for all.
0: Here we are, we're back, and I'm Pastor Rick Stevens, and you're listening to Faith Is, where we understand faith to be absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God, and we let God stretch us in His direction, and part of that stretch this week has been our shared challenge of Showing up to church for Easter for sure and maybe No, not maybe Determining that we're going to set aside some other time as holy this week So we are planning to attend Good Friday services. Oh, and maybe there's one other that we didn't think about maybe you'll think about attending an Easter sunrise service Now, some people don't even really know what it's like for the sun to rise because they haven't seen it for years and years. But maybe, maybe that would be one way you would set aside this week as holy. Maybe there's not a sunrise service near you. You could have your own, I suppose. And I'm not picking on a particular expression here for you to do. I know life is complicated and schedules are complicated. We have responsibilities. What I'm saying is... Can you, when you have discretionary time, set aside some purposeful reasons? Not because, oh, do I have to? That just grates on me. But think of it as, how do I get to declare before heaven and earth that I'm loyal to Jesus and this is Holy Week and I'm going to set it apart as special in my life? Your friends will kind of look at you funny if you say, no, I can't go do this because this is Holy Week and I'm making it holy by going here. And don't do that arrogantly or like you're better than anybody else. That's not at all the point. The point is simply that that's your testimony that that's going to demonstrate my loyalty, my faithfulness, and I'm going to follow Jesus. So that's what we've been thinking about. Now I want us to think about one other thing that that we haven't uh, gotten to yet this week, and that's our hymns every Christian should know. You may remember I mentioned several weeks ago and we started this countdown kind of, of of hymns every christian should know. Earlier this year our church I asked them to, to to help us and we kind of developed a little process. It wasn't particularly scientific and we weren't worried about that. We were just trying to come to some consensus, some conclusion and boy was that challenging of what hymns every christian should know. Now we didn't try to pick our favorites. If I had asked for favorites, that would have been a different list. I asked people to think about pray about what hymns should every christian know and so we identified 10 and then we had it was so close so difficult i mean we started out with i think it was 143 possible hymns that every christian should know and we managed to get the list down to 10 with five honorable mentions because they were so close we couldn't hardly leave them out so We've been counting them down over the last few weeks. And number 10 was Jesus Loves Me. You remember we talked about that. Number 9, Christ the Lord is Risen Today. And by the way, yes, that's a great one for Easter. And yes, we'll be singing it. Number 8 was Holy, Holy, Holy. And number 7, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. Now this week we get to number 6 on our list. And number 6 is A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. A mighty fortress is our God. Now, that is a wonderful hymn. I mean, I can't tell you how much I like that hymn. And I and I have to tell you that I'm really, really proud of our church for, for what they chose. Because you, they didn't have to choose anything that I liked or that I agreed with. That, that was not part of the equation. I didn't disqualify anything because I didn't agree with it. That wasn't the point. But I've noticed how seriously they took these things and how much what the what the text of these great hymns said and how that really mattered to people. So we come to A Mighty Fortress Is Our God. You may remember that was written by Martin Luther and later translated by a man named Frederick Hedge, Martin Luther, of course, being German. You might also be interested to know that uh, this kind of shocked me when I was looking into this. The translator that translated the hymn Uh, He was a Unitarian pastor, and I didn't really expect that, given the state of the Unitarian Church today. I don't know what it was in those days, but nonetheless, that's what we have. So let's take a look at what A Mighty Fortress Is Our God says, starting with stanza one. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. For still our ancient foe does seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. Did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing? Were not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. You ask whom that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he. Lord, Sabbath, his name from age to age the same. And he must win the battle. And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That word above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. The spirit and the gifts are ours through him who with us sideth. Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. The body they may kill. God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. What a great hymn. And of course, that reflects the the struggles that Martin Luther had... And we, we're familiar with a little bit of that, that he went through a lot of trials and, and trouble. But he wrote this great hymn of steadfast commitment to God, and what we might say a steadfast faith, absolute confidence in the trustworthiness of God. He really did rise to the occasion. It's a paraphrase of Psalm 46. You may want to go look at that psalm. He wrote it. Sometime between 1527 and 1529, I guess you could say this hymn has stood the test of time. And I think it has so much to say to us in our day. Several things stood out to me. I mean, the one I guess that that stands out to me most was that in the third stanza, And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear. And I've been saying that to our church. We've been reminding each other, we will not be afraid because God is with us. And even Martin Luther recognized the need to overcome fear. And so many times people get afraid. We're not going to give in to fear. Absolutely, we are not. And when the hard times come, it's time for the church to step up. We in the church do not cave in to hard times. We don't confide, as he says in stanza two, in our own strength, because that wouldn't be any good. But but Christ Jesus is the one in, whom, in whose strength we stand. He has chosen to triumph through us. We can endure the worst of evil, but God will one day handle all of that. And we can trust him, and his kingdom is forever. So don't be afraid, okay? Well... A mighty fortress that that was our choice that was number six on our list and it's a good one we sang it last sunday at our church maybe you'll sing it soon at yours okay back to the triumphal entry and we followed jesus we talked a little bit about the geography coming from jericho through bethany up over the hill and down across the kidron valley and into jerusalem and and now i want to talk just a little bit about this idea of a triumphal entry Now, I don't see anywhere in the text that it calls it a triumphal entry. We've called it that for years and never doubted it, and I'm not suggesting we should. But one of the interesting things is that we don't necessarily connect is that there was an event called a Roman triumph in those days. And it was a colossal event, generally took place in Rome, so it wouldn't have taken place in Jerusalem. I, I get that, I understand that. But it was a hugely significant event in the life of the the Roman Republic, and it was a it was an honor that was sought out by every general that had any reasonable idea of having a military victory and earning the opportunity to have a triumph, because a triumph was a parade for all intents and purposes, more than a parade that we think about. But it was a parade that showed off the general's success. It was a colossal display, and that was part of it. The success of a Roman triumph was the display, and the display itself was success because it pointed to how great this general was. They would seek and jockey for position to earn the opportunity to have a triumph. It was a reward for their military victories. And one of the experts on the Roman triumph, Mary Beard, described it as a restaging of the general's victory. So these Roman generals, and you know they conquered the world, they went out and they had these battles and they won these things and they they captured nations, cities, they captured wealth of all kinds, they captured people and enslaved them. The, they, they just that they I guess from their point of view they just took care of business, and they were ruthless. So when a general would have a big victory, then they would earn the opportunity to have a triumph and be honored by the people. And honor was a big deal and and a Roman triumph to have this parade was a huge honor. Now remember, this culture of this time, the time that the setting of the New Testament was an honor and shame culture, and so people were very conscious of avoiding shame and seeking honor. So you did not want to be shamed. You did not want to do to, to do anything that would result in shame. You wanted to accumulate honor, and and it was kind of like building up your bank account. I guess shame would take things away, and honor would build it up. And this idea of a Roman triumph was a huge, huge honor for these wealthy, powerful Roman generals. So they would get permission to have a triumph, and then outside the city of Rome, they would assemble all of the things that they were bringing back to put on display. And these parades would be long. I I have no idea how long, but they were not short parades. They were huge displays of all of this, and they would go on for a long time, and people would gather and watch the parade. Now, you and I sometimes watch parades. You've probably been to a parade recently. Um, I have to confess, parades are not my thing. Uh, I don't usually go to parades. We have a parade here that I thought might be interesting because it's a nighttime parade celebrating the Edison Festival of Lights. We have the place here where Edison and Ford spent their winters just across the river in Fort Myers. And that parade is a nighttime parade because you can have lights in the parade that way. And I confess it's usually on a Saturday and I'm busy on Sundays, so I don't typically go to that parade and have it in all these years that I've lived here but but it's a big deal people people mark out their spots on the parade weeks ahead of time and you can go and see where and it's generally respected people will put their lawn chairs out days ahead of time along the parade route and nobody messes with them it's a it's a respected tradition to save a spot in the in the along the street for the parade Well, I don't know whether they saved their spots for the parade, but it was a big deal. And these generals would line up all of the things that they were bringing back to Rome, the spoils of war. So they would have all kinds of captured treasures. And if they had money, gold, those kinds of things, they would would display that and march it into the city along with their troops who were honored as well because they had won the battle. There might have been artworks of one kind or another, perhaps painting or sculptures or whatever they conceived of as valuable. They would take that art and haul it back to Rome and put it on display for this Roman triumph. They even would take parts of identifying parts of ships, in some cases, that had been captured or uh, destroyed in the battle... And they would take parts of that ship and haul it back. It was an enormous job hauling all this stuff back. But they would parade those ships, those pieces of the ships to show, look at this. We not only crushed this people, but we destroyed this ship and this ship and this ship. And they would march them through the city. Maybe they captured some significant weaponry. So all the weapons that they captured, they would put those on display and haul them through the city so that everybody could see what was going on. And part of what they did was they paraded before the Roman people, all of the people they had captured. And many of them, they were bringing back to Rome to be sold as slaves. And so they paraded those slaves through the streets so people could see them. And, of course, that was a shame. And as part of the honor and shame culture, the general and his troops were honored because of what they had done. These people, as the ones who had been conquered, were walking through in shame. And of course, as part of it, and it is kind of an ugly part of it, and there are plenty of ugly parts of the Roman Empire, I think we all understand that. But they would parade through the streets usually toward the end of the parade, just before the entrance of the of the triumphant general, they would parade the rulers of the conquered people through the corral, through the through the streets of Rome, and then at the culmination of the parade, they would take them off and they would be executed. So that was a demonstration of the, of the Roman power and might. And remember, it was a it was a display and it was success. The success of display and the display of success, as Mary Beard described it in her book on the Roman triumph. So it was a very big deal. Now, it seems that what we have looked at from this perspective of history, as we've looked at Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, and Christians have equated that to a triumph. That's why we call it the triumphal entry. And it's not at all like a Roman triumph, okay? The, the parade was not at all like that. I don't want to give that idea at all. I just want to make the connection. And I don't think it was lost on people in those days that Jesus was coming, and they were expecting him to come as the triumphant Messiah. Remember, they said, Hosanna, save us, O Lord. They were expecting that. So while there is that similarity of expectation that Jesus was a great person coming as Messiah, it, clearly the, the entry into Jerusalem was not at all like a Roman triumph. But the connection should not be lost. Because just as the Roman general, following up that parade and coming in last, was hailed as a, as a victor and liberator and a great person in all of Rome, so Jesus was hailed as victor and liberator. Save us, O Lord. He was honored as king. So in that sense, that's a similar function, but it's very different. Very different in this one really key point. We shouldn't miss that see the roman general brought back all these people that were captured men women and children paraded them through the streets many of them most of them to be sold as slaves to be subjugated forever some of them the nobles the the rulers that they brought back and maybe the the generals of the army that lost those people were slated for execution And they were killed publicly as part of that triumphal celebration in Rome. Simply beyond our comfort zone to think about some of those kind of things, but we dare not turn away from the realities of history. But Jesus' triumphal entry was very different than that. Yes, hail this victor, hail this king, hail this liberator, save us, oh Lord. But there were no people that went before Jesus that he had captured. There were no people that were to be enslaved in service to Jesus. There were no people that would be executed to show how great Jesus was. No, in this triumph, the real significant difference was, and I know you're there already, the real significant difference was now the conquering victor, the one who was hailed as Savior, the one who was greeted as King. He entered Jerusalem, and later that week, Days later, he would lay down his life for his friends. Like no expectation anyone could ever have had, the conquering king, who was welcomed into, into Jerusalem, gave his life for the people. Wow, that's just simply stunning. I guess the question for us now comes down to which part of the crowd are we? See, there were two crowds when we take the view of of Holy Week. There was this large crowd that followed Jesus out of Jericho. We talked about that a little bit. They would have traveled together, and they had the privilege of proclaiming Jesus as King, as Liberator, as Messiah, as Savior, as he entered Jerusalem. But later that week, sadly there was another crowd and we know this because the story of the of the gospels that said the people in this part of the country were looking to kill jesus some of the jewish leaders we discovered that in the story of lazarus and how jesus brought him back from the dead and then they plotted to kill jesus so it's not a surprise that there were people there that wanted to kill jesus but but notice the notice the contrast of crowds On what we call Palm Sunday, the crowd was proclaiming him as king, liberator. On Good Friday, the crowd was calling for Jesus' crucifixion. They were calling for the release of a known criminal, Barabbas, and for the death of Jesus. You know, much like today, they had to have the courage to choose. They had the courage to choose the right way to recognize Jesus as king, or they had to have the the temerity, maybe we could say, to choose to want Jesus killed. And I think the question for us is, which crowd are we going to join? Which crowd are we going to be a part of? You see, when I look around, there are so many people that they don't say it with their words, and and they would probably deny it. And I I get that, and I understand that. But by their ignoring Jesus, by their refusing to follow him, they're saying they would be just as happy to get rid of Jesus, or, as they said in those days, to crucify Jesus. Some of these people refuse to be part of a church. And, And I am deeply concerned that their refusal... Cuts deep into the heart of who they are and I don't want them to refuse to be part of a church I don't I don't like the idea that there may be a touch of arrogance with that that they're too good for a church They've been to churches and all these churches have problems. Welcome to the world. Every church I've ever known has problems Some more than others. I get that we're people But Jesus loved the church and refusal to be a part of a church Is joining a crowd? And not the crowd I want to be a part of. People today, they want their own way. They don't want what Jesus provides. They don't want to be faithful to him. You see, I think our choice comes down to which crowd will we be a part of. The one that wants to get rid of Jesus or the one that honors him as Savior. I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but next week and during this next week, I want you to ask the question, if it were true would I follow Jesus? Because how you answer that question tells me which crowd you're joining, tells you which crowd you're joining. And I want to encourage you, join the crowd that stretches in God's direction of faith in Jesus. I'm Pastor Rick. We'll talk again.